Our scripture this morning is from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Sometimes people ask me, what is it that you do? Or or even, what is it that you do exactly? It's an interesting question. My children tell me that being a theologian, the right answer should be, I make stuff up about God. (laughs) Now, there is some truth to this, perhaps more than I'd like to admit. We have a term for the attempt to sum up our work or our current project in a short, pithy way. It's called an elevator pitch. The idea is that you should be able to summarize your view or your project in the time it takes to hear the question asked and then reply as if you were riding on an elevator from one floor to another at a conference venue. This gives you about two minutes or less. Imagine you're faced with the question, what is the most central thing that you believe as a person of faith? How would you respond? What would be your elevator pitch? Such questions often help us to focus our minds on what is central, leaving to one side what is peripheral. And that's not a bad exercise to engage in from time to time, especially given the frantic pace at which many of us live. We might frame our time this morning together with a question to help focus our minds. If we were asked to summarize the gospel, how would we do that in an elevator pitch? What would we include and what would be left out? What is central and what is peripheral? Now, Paul is not giving us an elevator pitch in 2 Corinthians. It's hardly a short, pithy letter for those of you who know it. Nevertheless, in the passage before us today, he does provide us with a kind of summary of the gospel message. 
And what's interesting is that it's not quite what we might expect to hear from him. Hold that thought. We'll return to it presently. Many Bible translations entitle this passage the Ministry of Reconciliation. It says that in our Pew Bibles, or words to that effect. The idea is that here Paul gives his readers a sense of what, in essence, he thinks the message of the gospel delivers. It delivers a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is a strange word. It has to do with the bringing together of things that are separated, perhaps even estranged. Relationships are a good example of this. We say that a person reconciled with her estranged spouse or was reconciled with someone whom she had an argument with earlier that day and so on. But what does it mean here? Well, let me give a bit of Pauline backstory that you can find from other things that Paul says in his letters in the rest of the New Testament. And I suggest it means something like this. We human beings are fallen and estranged from God. We're sinful. We are at a distance from our Creator. We're in need of some action that may put us right with God and heal the relationship. How can that happen? Well, not by human hands, thinks Paul. For we're not in a position to, as it were, bootstrap ourselves back into God's good graces. No, it must instead be a divine action that brings about that kind of momentous change in us. And it's such momentous action that Paul talks about here in this section of the epistle. So let's turn to consider the passage in a little bit more detail. Paul is trying to cajole and encourage the Corinthian church with which he's had something of a love-hate relationship. You only have to read 1, 2 Corinthians to get the message of that. If he were asked, how are things with you and the Corinthian Christians? He might respond, well, it's complicated. Here he's trying to commend himself to the church that has fallen out of love with the apostle who seems so unimpressive to them in person as compared to these great grandiose letters he writes to them. In a way, he's trying to provide his bona fides to these people, and it's in the midst of this that he gives us this lovely section from verses 14 to 21 that were read to us about this ministry of reconciliation. Let's think about what he says here in verses 14 to 15. The love of Christ urges us on, he says, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What is more, he goes on, Christ has died so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, self-centered Corinthians, please take note, but for him who died and was raised for them. Christ's death on the cross is at the heart of this message of reconciliation. It's at least in part because of his death. Uh, it's, it, sorry, it's at least in part because his death. Um, it's at least in, in part because of his death that we estranged creatures can be reconciled to our Creator. But how? How does this happen? Earlier, 
I said that in this passage, Paul says some things about reconciliation that are unexpected. And here's the the kind of unexpectedness that I'm talking about right here in these verses when he says, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ has died so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. What does this mean? It seems strange to think that because one person has died, everyone has died. And it seems odd to think that Christ has died in order that we might live for him, the one who has been raised for us. Let's think again about this more carefully, zeroing in further into the passage. Whenever we read something difficult or puzzling in Scripture, it's always a good idea to look at the broader context of the passage to see whether that larger context gives us some clues about how to understand what is being said. We do this all the time in other mundane situations. Think of the way in which we think about puzzling things persons, other persons say to us. Usually, in order to make sense of what we find puzzling, we look for the context in which the thing was said to give us a better understanding. For instance, if you come across a sign that says, please be quiet, examinations in progress the chances are that a quick look around you will give you the context that you need. You're in a school building, and examinations are taking place there. Similarly, when we we read the Bible, like reading other texts, we look for clues in the context. We're puzzled, perhaps, by Paul's thought that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So we look for clues as to how we should understand this from the broader context. Let's read on to find more such clues. Verses 19 and 21 look promising. In verse 19, Paul says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the the message of reconciliation to us. And in verse 21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, let's set these later verses beside our earlier verse, the earlier thought that we had in verse 14. When we do, we get something like this idea. Christ is the means of our being reconciled to God. Our estrangement from God has to do in some fundamental sense with our sinfulness. The sinless and innocent Christ is made sin for us in order that we might be reconciled to God's self. This involves a kind of substitution similar to the sort of substitution that happens when someone takes the place of an injured player in in a game like soccer, for example. Christ takes our place. He's made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This act of reconciliation that happens through Christ is an act that has a global reach. God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Armed with these later verses from our passage, we can return to our earlier puzzling phrase in verse 14. One has died for all, therefore all have died. 
The idea, I suggest, seems to be this. Christ's death, as part of his act of reconciling us to God's self, is a death that is for the whole of humanity. Everyone is included in its scope. So there's a sense in which, because Christ has died on behalf of all human beings, including you and me, that all of us have died in or with Christ, something that Paul emphasizes elsewhere in his letters. He's keen on the idea that we are somehow united with Christ in his death and resurrection, and that we are somehow identified with Christ's action, which applies to all human beings. The substitutionary act whereby Christ becomes sin for us, standing in our place and acting as our substitute, is an act that is done for the whole of humanity. Well, so far, so good. Still, we're not all the way to a complete understanding as yet. For it's still puzzling to think that all those for whom Christ Christ acts as a substitution are somehow included in that act. Well, perhaps a homely illustration will help. When we say a person takes one for the team, what we usually mean is that someone does an unpleasant action on behalf of their colleagues. The classic example, so I'm told as an Englishman, is in baseball, when the person up to bat deliberately allows himself to be hit by a pitched ball that forces him to go to first base. I hope all the baseball aficionados are nodding out there. They are. I'm doing okay. The batter literally takes a hit for the benefit of the whole team. Now, I'm not a great one for sports analogies, but it seems to me that there's some usefulness of this particular analogy here. Christ isn't taking one for the team, strictly speaking, but the meaning of that common phrase gives us an insight into what Paul has in mind here when he says, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ acts on our behalf. He becomes sin for us. He dies in our place. And that act somehow reconciles us to God. Part of the reason is surely that his action on our behalf is like, in some sense, taking one for the team. It's an act that benefits all humanity. He undergoes the unpleasant task of becoming sin so that he can stand in our place and receive the consequences of sin and death on the cross so that we can be reconciled to God's self. A common theme in Paul's thought that is also to be found here has to do with participation. We somehow participate in Christ's action on our behalf, and as a consequence, we reap the benefits. Christ is made sin for us, says Paul, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that for a moment. For this is very strong language indeed. He doesn't say that we have a new status before God or that our record will be straightened out or even that God will welcome us into his presence, though all these things are true. What he says is that those who are in Christ are a new creation and also that we partake of the righteousness of God because of Christ. These images and metaphors are ways of communicating deep spiritual truth. We whom Christ reconciles to God's self are to participate in the very life of God. The great evangelical pastor, Jonathan Edwards, put it like this. Our reconciliation to God's self in Christ 
involves us becoming ever more like Christ, not just in this world, but in the next. We are, on Edwards' thinking, on a trajectory into God, so to speak. A bit like the Voyager spacecraft is on a trajectory into deep space in order to learn more about the cosmos. It's a journey that's ongoing, everlasting. In a similar way, God aims to bestow on us in Christ something, as Edwards puts it, infinitely valuable because eternal, namely God himself. God aims not just to put our relationship right with him, but to give us himself, to offer us the chance to be united with him and to commune with him forevermore. And yet, Edwards goes on to say, there will never come a moment in this life or the next when it can be said that now this infinitely valuable good has been actually bestowed. When I'm teaching students, they've often said to me something like this. This is seminarians, by the way. I don't really care for all this theology. I just want to understand and read the Bible. My response is always the same. What do you think the Bible contains? There is no theology-free zone in Scripture. It's theology all the way down. For theology is just another way of saying knowledge of God and His purposes in creation and salvation. What we find here in 2 Corinthians 5 is ample evidence of this. In the midst of his appeal to the Corinthians, Paul laces his letter with high-octane theology about this ministry of reconciliation. He doesn't shy away from the deep stuff, but he makes it part of his practical message. It's not a matter of theology on the one hand or practice on the other, but both. Theology for practice. If we were asked to give an elevator, an elevator pitch describing what is central to the Christian message, I suggest we could do worse than take our cues from Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Christianity is about the ministry of reconciliation. It's about how Christ reconciles us to God by becoming sin for us. It's about making us into new creations to be like the resurrected Christ. It's about an invitation to participate in the divine life made possible by Christ's work on our behalf. And remarkably, it is about how this amazing message, which is for all humanity, is given into our hands to pass on to others. That is the ministry of reconciliation, to pass on the message of salvation that has been entrusted to you and to me. May God grant us the grace to do so. Amen.